Welcome, friends. This is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. Today is the third Monday of December, so of course that means it's time for another edition of the Film Literature and the New World Order podcast here on CorbettReport.com. And if you did your homework from last month, yes, this month we are talking about that classic Christmas tale by Charles Dickens, A Christmas Carol. And even if by some minor miracle you have somehow been able to avoid this particular story your entire life, you are still guaranteed to know its main plot and theme from the million references that have woven themselves into the DNA of our popular culture over the past century and a half. Uh, Ebenezer Scrooge, of course, a cratchety old miser who says bah humbug to all the Merry Christmasers, becomes a man who knew how to keep Christmas well if any man alive possessed the knowledge. After being haunted by the ghost of his old business partner who warns him of the chains that he is forging in this present life, uh, forging in the afterlife through his miserly ways in the present life, uh, he's visited by the ghosts of Christmas past, present, and future, and wakes up on Christmas morning a transformed man. This is a fairly typical Dickensian tale of dirty old Victorian London and the downtrodden underclass, and it has a heartwarming happy ending, because there is a reason, after all, why Dickens was the most popular writer in the English language during his lifetime, bar none. But having said all of that, it's time for a quick quiz. What comes to mind when you think of the name Scrooge? Rich? Miserly? Cold-hearted? Libertarian? That is the argument put forward by Roderick Long in his essay, Who's the Scrooge? Libertarians and Compassion, originally published in the winter 1993-94 issue of Formulations by the Free Nation Foundation and republished last Christmas by the Center for a Stateless Society at c4ss.org. Roderick Long teaches philosophy at Auburn University. He's president of the Molinari, Molinari Institute and Molinari Society, senior scholar of the Ludwig von Mises Institute, and much, much else besides. His biography, as well as his writings and more information about him, can be found at aaeblog.com which, of course, will be linked up in the show notes for this conversation. Roderick Long, thank you very much for taking the time to talk with us today. Thank you. Glad to be here. Excellent. Well, let's start in on this very interesting conversation, and I find it particularly interesting because, as I note there in the introduction, of course, we are all very, very well familiar with this story from the hundreds and thousands of iterations that we've seen uh, of it during our lifetimes. And yet, in all of that time, I'd never really thought about the associations that have come up um, in, in the popular imagination between Scrooge and those dastardly libertarians who think that... Uh, there should be no fundamental economic right to welfare. And uh, this is something that's very interesting, the way that it's kind of subtly uh, evoked, I think, through this story and its various iterations. And many people uh, who criticize libertarianism, I think, have drawn this association, whether consciously or not. And yet I, of course, I had never explicitly noticed this until I read your essay, in fact, quite recently on the C4SS website, uh, this is something that you penned almost two decades ago now. So tell us about how you started to to connect this Scrooge idea to the 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 image of libertarianism that critics of libertarianism um, generally pr- promote. Well, I'd uh, you know, even back then I'd seen the connection drawn. I've seen it drawn more often since, and not just by critics of libertarianism, but often by libertarians themselves. You know, every Christmas you'll find if you look around some article by some libertarian defending Scrooge. Uh, you know, sort of you know, allowing themselves to be cast in the Scrooge role. Um, but, uh, you know, 
that was less common then, I think, or at least, well, there was less internet. Um, uh, you know, nowadays, if you do a search on uh, Scrooge libertarianism on the internet, you'll find you know both attacks and defenses that accept this connection of um, of uh, uh, libertarians with Scrooge. But um, you know, I've always thought it was a mistake, and that if you uh, you know if you read carefully. Uh, what Scrooge says in the very passage in which he's supposed to be at his most explicitly libertarian, you really good carefully just saying, I think he's saying something quite um, quite unlibertarian. And I also think that there's a broader moral to be drawn, because beyond Scrooge, just is that you know it's a mistake to think of libertarians as uh, you know, Scrooge like and uncompassionate. So there's sort of two points I wanted to make. One is about, you know, what's going on with Scrooge? That Scrooge is less libertarian. Um that he seems, and then sort of the flip side of that is that libertarians are less Scrooge-like than they seem. Exactly right, and I think your article does this uh, quite quite soundly. So let's start by taking a look at some of the misconceptions that are often used when painting this sort of caricature of libertarianism that you point out in the article. Misconceptions to do with the uh, the class interests that are generally defended by libertarians, or uh, about the the libertarian idea of generosity. Uh, what are these misconceptions that are used to paint the picture of libertarians as bah humbugs? Okay, well, to begin with, uh, you know, so libertarians are against uh, forcing people to help other people. So they're against, uh, you know, therefore they're against uh, forcibly taking legitimate property from some people and giving it to other people. Um, you know, so they're against, you know, so if, if someone is rich legitimately, they're against taking their money away from them to give it to the poor. They'd also be against taking money from poor people to give it to rich people, whatever, uh, against, you know, Taking property from one person, giving it to another, except when that's needed to redress some, you know, some injustice that someone has committed against the person or property of someone else. Now, uh, you know, because of this, people, because libertarians are opposed to, uh, you know, forcing people to use their property to help other people, people often say that this shows a, you know, a lack of compassion. Uh, in particular, the assumption is that libertarians themselves. Are primarily interested in holding on to their wealth and not, uh, you know, not helping other people with it, and therefore not being, not wanting to be forced to help other people with it. There's several problems with this. First of all, it automatically casts libertarian in the role of the person who is, you know, refusing to coercively help as opposed to refusing to coercively be helped. It makes it sound as though libertarians are all rich and that they're always in the position of the people. Who would be the givers of help? But you know, libertarians are found in every economic uh, category. Uh, as I say in the in the article, I've known libertarians who are multimillionaires, and I've known libertarians who didn't know where the next meal was coming from. You know, the libertarians show up in you know many different uh, economic strata. So, you know, the the claim that libertarian claim that I should not be forced to help you. Uh, yes, libertarians will will say that. But libertarians also think you should not be forced to help me. That libertarians you know don't want other people to be forced to help them when they're in need. Uh, so that's one point, is that the assumption that uh, you know, the libertarians are, you know, in saying this, they must be defending their own uh, uh, interests on the assumption that they're the, they're the ones who would be the, the, uh, you know, the givers rather than the receivers. But another point is that uh, the question of whether 
someone should be compassionate and the question of whether someone should be forced to help someone else are two different questions. Uh, one question is whether I should uh, you know, should voluntarily give some of my money to help someone else. That's a question of you know, my personal moral obligations. Then there's a the question of whether I should or force someone else to pay some third party. So if I put a gun in your face and say, you know, give 50 bucks to this poor person over there, uh, well, I'm not making you compassionate. I'm not, you know, I'm not causing compassion to appear in your soul. Um, and I'm not being, you know, compassionate. I'm not being generous, because if I were generous, I'd give my own money. Instead, I am forcing you to give them your money. Um, and, you know, there's a you know there's a big difference between saying that people should you know should um you know should give to help others and saying that they should be forced to give to help others um you know, a libertarian you know then now there are libertarians libertarians have a variety of attitudes toward charity voluntary charity but they're usually for it and that includes the person people might most li- be might likely to think would be against charity and that's Ayn Rand because Ayn Rand talks about the virtue of selfishness and so forth but Rand praises charity. Um, she has in her in a book of her letters. She wrote. Um, she writes about the Hollywood Studio Club, which was a uh, a club that provided um, low cost housing for uh, young women who were trying to make it in the Hollywood movie business. And she was talking about uh, what a wonderful charity it was and how uh, happy she was to give to it because it's important to help people. Um, no, she thought that you should you, know, you should help people who. Uh, who deserve it, and you should, shouldn't help them out of a, you know, out of a sense of guilt. You should help them because you genuinely value them and what they're, you know, and what they're trying to accomplish. Um, but you know, even Ayn Rand was in favor of private charity, and you know, other libertarians who are not Randians are obviously even more uh, likely to be in favor of private charity, um, just not in favor of uh, forcing people uh, to contribute. Libertarian, compassionate libertarian, Professor Long. From my my readings of uh, Salon dot com, such words are oxymoronic. Um, no, your point is well taken, and I think it's explicitly stated quite well in the article uh, where you say libertarianism is not a comprehensive moral theory; it is simply a theory of justice, a theory about what rights people have. Generosity is the virtue that guides us in giving what we have a right to withhold. Justice is the virtue that get, guides us in giving what we do not have a right to withhold. Hence, libertarianism as such has nothing to say one way or the other about generosity or what it requires of us, which seems to be uh, just a, a point so so nuanced that it seems to go over the heads of many of libertarian, uh, li- libertarian critics, or maybe just willfully goes over their heads. But let's examine that passage that you allude to earlier, the, the identifiably quote-unquote libertarian or strawman libertarian uh, passage that is often cited, and that you begin the article with, which uh, starts with one of the uh, two gentlemen that show up in Scrooge office looking for some uh, charitable donation from him for the poor and the man says as the f- this festive season of the year mr Scrooge at this festive season of the year mr Scrooge said the gentleman taking up a pen it is more than usually desirable that we should make some slight provision for the poor and destitute who suffer greatly at the present time many thousands are in want of common necessaries hundreds of thousands are in want of common comfort sir are there no prisons asked Scrooge plenty of prisons said the gentleman laying down the pen again and the union workhouses, demanded Scrooge, are they still in operation? They are, 
Still, returned the gentleman, I wish I could say they were not. The treadmill and the poor law are in full vigor, then? said Scrooge. Both very busy, sir. Oh, I was afraid from what you said at first that something had occurred to stop them in their useful course, said Scrooge. I'm very glad to hear it. Under the impression that they scarcely furnish Christian cheer of mind or body to the multitude, returned the gentleman, a few of us are endeavoring to raise a fund to buy the poor some meat and drink and means of warmth. We choose this time because it is a time of all others when want is keenly felt and abundance rejoices. What shall I put you down for? Nothing, replied Scrooge. You wish to be anonymous? I wish to be left alone, said Scrooge. Since you ask me what I wish, gentlemen, that is my answer. I don't make merry myself at Christmas, and I can't afford to make idle people merry. I help to support the establishments I have mentioned. They cost enough, and those who are badly off must go there. Many can't go there, and many would rather die. If they would rather die, said Scrooge, they had better do it and decrease the surplus population. It's enough for a man to understand his own business and not to interfere with other people's. Mine occupies me constantly. Good afternoon, gentlemen. Of course, that is the sine qua non of Scroogeness right there. The uh, the absolute uh, quintessence of what it means to be Scrooge, to uh, let them die and reduce the surplus population. And again, it's not only that this is not anything to do with libertarianism, which of course is, again, as you say, is a theory of justice, not a comprehensive moral theory. But in fact, the, the things that Scrooge advocates in this passage are directly contrary to the principles of libertarianism. Yeah, it is. Um, I mean, I think people focus on lines like, I wish to be left alone. It's enough for a man to understand his own business, not to interfere with others. That sounds sort of broadly libertarian. But if you notice, you know, the, uh, the, um, the institutions he praises, so there are prisons, which are one of the places that they expect poor people, who, and then there are the union workhouses, which were these places where people in, uh, uh, were were placed poor people who uh, couldn't support themselves were well, you could say given work but they were you know it was uh kind of you know very unpleasant labor he mentions the treadmills this was a government operation uh poor people in they were thrown into prison because they you know couldn't fend for themselves had to work on the treadmill what the treadmill was was a you know a um, you know a big wheel that with steps on it and you turned the wheel by walking on it and you get a bunch of of people just walking on this thing, um, and it would turn a crank, and it would be doing some kind of useful work. But also, it was a kind of discipline—you know, thought of as a salutary discipline to these people. And they might spend like six hours a day just walking on this—you know—this treadmill, turning it with their feet, you know, walking uphill, uh, you know, six hours straight. And these were government projects. These were government programs that, on the one hand, were uh, you know, government funded, um, and uh, on the other hand, were you know forms of uh, of forced labor uh, in many cases, and um, you know they're not libertarian uh, institutions. Uh, and Scrooge, you know, doesn't just say you know that he you know he's paid for, he's helped to pay for these things through his taxes. And therefore, you know, doesn't want to pay for any additional thing. That's not all he says. He, he refers to them as being uh, uh, valuable. He talks about the useful course of these you know, hellish uh, government programs. So it seems like he's in favor both of a rather nastily administered government welfare program and of forced labor uh, in prison. Um, you know, that's not very libertarian. 
Whereas the you know the two gentlemen are not you know the two gentlemen never never suggest that Scrooge should be forced to pay them. They don't you know they don't ransack his um, uh, you know his uh, bureau and try and extract money from him. Uh, you know the two gentlemen are the more libertarian ones. They are defenders of I mean who knows what they're you know they may not be libertarians, but I mean in terms of their interaction with Scrooge, they are taking the libertarian position of defending voluntary charity. And Scrooge is taking the non-libertarian position of defending uh, government welfare and forced labor. Exactly, exactly the case. So I guess then to to really drive the point home with regards to the fact that uh, that not only uh, again is this uh, portrayal not necessarily to do with libertarianism, but is in fact quite antithetical in in many ways. Let's let's look at the transformation that takes place. Obviously, Scrooge going through the uh, the the various stages of Christmas past, present, and future, and and having his uh, his uh, transformation. And in his Christmas past, of course, he goes back to visit uh, the man that he apprenticed under, Mister Fezziwig, and uh, he sees the the gaiety that the the uh, the company that he worked for uh, rejoiced in at the time when he was. Uh, an apprentice, which had a, a Christmas party, and there was much dancing and happiness. And I think the uh, the, the representation here is that uh, that uh, one can be in business and be in business to make money and to make a profit, and yet still be a generous person who is well liked. And this is, I think, the image that we that we see Scrooge turn, turn, turning to at the end of the story, where he has obviously become generous and is now uh, has seen the error of his ways and corrected them. I guess the question is. Is there anything about the Scrooge at the end of this story that is in any way contradictory to the ideas or ideals of libertarianism? Uh, you know, not in the least. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't go around and you know start robbing people. We don't see him uh, either freelance or through government. He doesn't start advocating government programs. Uh, you know, he starts um, you know, personally helping people. Um, also, although this, you know, this goes beyond the you know, narrowly political sense of libertarianism to the broader ethical question, but he doesn't, you know, the point of the story is not supposed to be that he should be sacrificing his happiness for the sake of other people's. That's not what the story of Scrooge is. It's not as though at the beginning, Scrooge is, you know, is having a, you know, a wonderfully happy time, but, but you know, leaving everyone else miserable, and now at the end, he's, you know, he's sacrificing his own happiness for others, you know, He's, uh, you know, he's been, you know, he's been, uh, you know, begrudging himself uh, any kind of enjoyment in life as much as he has, uh, you know, other people. And now he's, you know, uh, coming to take pleasure in providing pleasure for others. Um, and uh, hmm. you know, that's a profound point that you make because I am the cynical side of me wants to take a look at the end of this and say, oh, Scrooge becomes a well-liked man because now he's giving away his wealth and so people can get something out of him so they, they like him more. It's almost the, uh, the, the sort of flip side of that image of the ghost of Christmas future that he sees of basically the servants stealing his, uh, his bedclothes and things after he dies because they want something, something out of him so they can at least get some pleasure from the fact uh, – of his existence by the fact they can steal things from him. And at the end, well, he's giving it away so people like him. But I think 
You're, you're right. I think that the, 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 the point that the story tries to make is that people like him not because he's giving away his wealth, but because he has such great delight and joy in it that he keeps the, 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 the festive season in his heart all the year round or, or whatever language uh, Dickens puts it in. It's, it's, the, it's the idea of the, the, the gaiety and, the, and the, 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 the happiness that comes from that act itself that seems to be the really redemptive part of this, this story, not, not the, the dispersal of the money. Um, uh, per se, right? Um, it's yeah, and you know, I don't think I don't think the moral of the story is supposed to be that uh, you know the whole point is to you know, to get other people to like him in some sort of one sided way. It's he it's to bring him into human fellowship, and he sort of excluded himself from human fellowship in both ways. I mean, he hasn't you know he hasn't been friendly to others, but he hasn't received friendliness from others either, and he's turned it away when it was offered. And he comes into a kind of you know, mutually beneficial human fellowship uh, at the end of it, which is richer than what he was doing uh, before, which is not to say that I – mean, we're never told exactly what his business is, but you know, it's not to say that his business was, uh, you know, was bad in any way. We don't know what his business was. Um, we just know that, it was, that, his folk, his, that his conception of it and of its role in his life was a very uh, – you know, narrow one. Um, you know, the problem wasn't so much with the business as with what was in the business as what wasn't, you know, what wasn't in his life beyond that. But also, I want to say a little bit about uh, a third point, which is people often think that you know, when um, uh, when uh, libertarians say that uh, they're in favor of of uh, private charity rather than government programs, people often think, well. Yes, but government programs, you know, if you have a government program, you're guaranteeing the, um, the uh, well-being of the poor. Whereas if you leave it to private charity, then it's just you know, random and haphazard, like maybe they'll get some help, maybe they won't. It depends on the whim of some particular wealthy person. Whereas under a, uh, you know, if you have a government program, then the, then the poor guaranteed it, and it's more reliable and more dignity and so forth. And I think that should be questioned also. Um, you know, so first of all, there's this assumption that once government, once there's a government program to do something, then the thing is guaranteed to happen. And you know, to, when you state that explicitly, it's obviously absurd. We know that you know governments don't <laughs> don't automatically just because the government says we're passing a law to do X, there's no guarantee that X is going to happen. But there's a tendency for people to think that if government's doing something, then the thing is somehow the result is guaranteed in a way that's not of us left to the market. And, and actually, isn't that the point that, that we referred to in that passage? I mean, there are prisons, there are union workhouses, there is the treadmill and the poor law, and it's not enough. That, that, that isn't the solution. Yeah, and not only was it not enough, but it's, you know, it was, it was not, um, you know, it was not uh, conducive to uh, the dignity or security of the people that were, you know, that it was supposedly directed uh, uh, to help. Um, but, uh, you know, moreover, you know, when you, when we look at how, uh, how, uh, you know, government actually operates, um, the, uh, the, the poor are the, are the worst victims of, of government. And part of the reason for that is that, that when, because the poor are a large dispersed interest 
Whereas, you know, people who are more affluent are more concentrated in dress, and they have more money and more time to, you know, to lobby government and so forth. And therefore, if the government does something that uh, you know, hurts the welfare of the of the rich, the rich can afford the, you know, the time to hire lawyers and hire lobbyists and they you don't know, try and do something about it. Whereas, you know, when that happens to the poor, the poor really don't have, you know, the time or the uh, information or the money to do anything about it. And that's why you get all these laws, was part of the reason you get all these laws that make it hard for poor people to start their own businesses, licensing laws, zoning restrictions, minimum wage laws, um, uh, all these regulations that, uh, you know, cases where in order to engage in some very simple business like, um, like a taxi service or hair braiding or something like this, you have the, you know, you have these, you know, you have to pay for some expensive license, or you have to get, uh, you have to pass some expensive uh, course. Um, you know, I remember a case in which the um, these um, uh, these young people in the inner city had this hair braiding service. In order to be allowed to do it, they had to take a course that covered uh, an entire range of beautician stuff that they weren't doing. They, you know, they didn't do it. They just offered one service, hair braiding, but in order to be allowed to do that, they had to pass a course. It was time-consuming and, of course, costly. Um, and uh, the, you know, the people who don't have much capital up front are the, precisely the people who most need to be able to start these businesses and are prevented from uh, uh, from starting them. Uh, and uh, so, uh, to, you know, so to that extent, poor people would need charity less in a freer market. But also charities, although you know, all the charities differ from one charity to another as to how efficient they are. They are um, private charities are generally more efficient than uh, government welfare programs in terms of the amount that gets eaten up in uh, in overhead um, of the money that, that that goes to private charity. Uh, go private charity. The percentage of that that actually gets to the intended recipients tends to be significantly higher than in welfare programs. Plus. Uh, you know, in a freer market, people would have more, you know, there would be more prosperity and people would have more money to give. So the, the total amount of money that would be available to give to charity would be higher. The amount of that charity that got to the intended recipients, would be, the percentage would be higher, and then the number of people in need of charity would be lower. So I think that the poor people, you know, if you, if you were trying to design a system that would have most benefits to the poor, I think libertarianism would be far better than the, you know, than the, um, you know the current system. I mean, the, under our current system, uh, you know, people, uh, you know, think that all these laws are to the benefit of the poor, but in practice, the, um, you know, they tend to work more to the benefit of those who can afford to jump through all the regulatory uh, hoops and pay all the fees and so forth, and they are in effect protected from competition by the less affluent. Exactly right. And of course, in a system where you are forced to support one particular charity, government-enforced charity, then any inefficiencies in that system, whether just random inefficiencies or ones that have been deliberately placed there for the purposes of lining the pockets of various cronies, uh, at any rate, are infixed and, and extremely difficult uh, to, to actually get rid of. Whereas in a private charity system, of course, you can direct your funds to the most efficient charity or the one that, uh, that most uh, uh, accurately reflects your own 
personal uh, moral philosophy. So uh, again, I mean, the the virtue of choice is uh, and and freedom uh, of choice is uh, everywhere reflected in 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 that in that ideal um, that again is of course uh, uh, upheld by the libertarian philosophy. But this this entire conversation presents something of a problem. Which is that everything that you say makes makes quite a lot of sense to me, and I imagine to many of the listeners. Um, but this, uh, I, I, the question is, why are we having this conversation? Why is libertarianism so far behind in the sort of PR campaign or the battle for hearts and minds that we have to refute the idea that one of the meanest and most miserly characters in all of fiction is not one of us? Honest, why why is this, and why are we always on the defensive when it comes to this? Well. You know, I think when libertarians have a poor PR problem, you know, there are always two groups to blame. There are libertarians' critics, and there's libertarians, libertarians themselves. Uh, you know, and people can argue about exactly how to apportion the blame between the two. But on the one hand, libertarians' critics, you know, will you know, often have an incentive to misrepresent it. But on the other hand, libertarians themselves don't always present the views in the you know in the most defensible way. Uh, you know, I, I mentioned before that. Um, you know, every Christmas time you find libertarians rushing up to defend Scrooge. Um, and well, I can, you know, to some extent, I can, uh, I can sympathize with the kind of, you know, contrarian urge to do something like that. Uh, it is, you know, there, you know, it's sort of confirming and buying into this notion. And you do find often, um, you know, libertarians can often be kind of schizo in the sense that, on the one hand, they will recognize the extent to which big business derives a lot of, of its wealth and power and privilege from government favoritism. But on the other hand, there's often a tendency for libertarians to sort of flip over and think of themselves as defenders of the rich uh, against the, you know, against the, uh, the poor and think of the, of, uh, you know, welfare to the poor as the, uh, you know, as the big problem. Um, you can find that, you know, again in Ayn Rand. So Ayn Rand famously said, referred to big business as America's persecuted minority. Um, but on the other hand, you know, when she was on other topics, she would talk about how in real life, big business uh, you know, that is often heavily involved in seeking favors from government. Uh, in her novels, most of the businessmen in her novels are you know, parasitic, glad-handing types who are, you know, who are eager to get special favors from government. They're not the most memorable characters because her, you know, her, her bad characters are sort of squishy, mushy people who, you know, don't stick in their mind as much and the, the heroic characters stick more in their mind. But, but the heroic, the heroic businessman is sort of the exception. So she'll talk about the aristocracy of Pole and about how, uh, you know, lots of business leaders support you know, essentially a, a fascist system of government privilege for for big business. She'll say that, and then she'll turn turn around and talk about big business being the persecuted minority, as if she's you know, forgetting that. Now you see that I think a, a lot of libertarians is that they have sort of two different visions of what they're doing, and sometimes they'll they'll think of themselves as defenders of existing big business, not some sort of idealized big business that might exist in a free market, but existing big business and other times they will you know they will recognize that in fact existing big business is not that you know, it's not so free market um of course this is and also this is true of libertarianism critics too i mean look at um look at someone like noam chomsky who has criticized libertarianism and criticized free markets 
on the grounds that it would you know give uh, you know unaccountable power to big business. And yet Chomsky, in his own research, has shown over and over again how big business gets all kinds of special favors from government. Um, but you know, so both libertarians and their critics, you know, tend to switch back and forth between two different visions of of what's going on. One that sort of you know confirms the you know, the Scrooge caricature, and one that goes against it. And so I think we just need to be more consistent in uh, in pushing what I think is the more accurate and more you know consistent uh, vision of free markets as uh, in many ways breaking the power of uh, the existing wealthy. I think so. And I think, again, this for me goes back to that, just the, the, the reiteration that libertarianism or even voluntarism, as, as I myself uh, identify with, is not a comprehensive moral theory. It's just a, a theory of justice. So the compassion side of it has to be filled in by ourselves. And we can do that uh, through 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 greater philosophical thinking. So I, I think we do have to reject, obviously, the Scrooge libertarian caricature and uh, and work towards the construction of something nobler. And, uh, well, we'll see how that develops. But at any rate, it is, it is absolutely possible for those of you out there in the listening audience who happen to be on the libertarian spectrum, end of the spectrum, to be both libertarian and to keep Christmas in your heart. So <laughs> let's keep that in mind this Christmas season. And on that note, Roderick Long, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, yourself and the work that you do at the Austro-Athenian blog? Okay, well, I'm, a, you know, I'm a, a philosopher. I teach philosophy at Auburn University in Alabama. Um, the, uh, you know, and so my blog is, the, the reason it's called Austro-Athenian is because uh, it combines ideas from the Austrian School of Economics, people like Ludwig von Mises, Friedrich Hayek, Murray Rothbard, and on the other hand, the Athenian side of it is uh, from Greek philosophy, ideas of people like Socrates and Aristotle uh, and so forth. Those are some of my main influences. And so that's where those the names Austro and Athenian came from. Uh, that's the main thing they came from. And gradually, as other, you know, as you know, sort of other interesting affiliations, I sort of threw those into the meaning as well. The, um, the, uh, the organization I'm primarily involved with is the Center for a Stateless Society, which is where you saw uh, this, the, the uh, reprinted version of, of my essay. Um, so the Center for a Stateless Society is, well, first of all, anarchist, as you can tell from the, uh, from the title, but uh, also takes uh, you know, what you might broadly call a, um, a left libertarian take on things in that, for example, uh, it stresses the ways in which the state props up the power of big business and uh, the ways in which rather than you know, rushing to defend existing businesses as though they had achieved their dominance uh, through a free market, uh, the Center for Stateless Society likes to you know, point to the ways, many, many more ways than people often recognize, even than you know, many libertarians often recognize, the way, the systematic ways in which, um, uh, in which, uh, you know, big business and big government are are intertwined and uh, and mutually supporting. Uh, so that's the you know that's the organization I'm most involved with, and um, and that's uh, that is, I guess, part of the Molinari Institute. Um, you know, the, it's sort of an, I guess the phrase we've been using is it's an autonomous extension of it. 
Um, we share a bank account, uh, and you know, but we're we're they're not identical. But yeah, it's hard to know exactly how to describe the <laughs> the, the relation. But um, uh, and the Molinari Institute is named after Gustav de Molinari, who was the the founder of free market anarchism in you know, in, in France in the 1840s, the first person to talk about how uh, how market mechanisms might replace uh, the state. So those are some of the main things I'm involved with. Excellent. Well, of course, that does line up with a lot of what we talk about here on the Corbett Report. So I hope we can have you back on in the future to talk more about some of those philosophical uh, uh, antecedents to your work and some of the work that you're doing. But uh, keeping all of that in mind, of course, we'll direct people once again to your Austro-Athenian Empire blog, aaeblog.com, and of course, the Center for Stateless Society, c4ss.org. Roderick Long, thank you so much for joining us on the program today. Thanks a lot. I've enjoyed it. Merry Christmas. All right, friends, there we are at the end of another edition of Film Literature in the New World Order. So I hope at the very least this episode has warmed the cockles of your heart and you got to enjoy a classic Dickens uh, tale while we're at it. So I think doubly bonus for all of us. All right, let's just close up as we always do by going through the uh, mailbag from last month's edition of this series. And of course, last month we were talking to James Perloff about Torah, Torah, Torah. So there were a couple of comments there on the website. Uh, the first one from L- LCSRN927, which is a mouthful and a half, who writes, Thank you for answering a nagging question. Why not move the ships in the harbor when an attack was suspected? A near miss would have mobilized the U.S. public as good as a direct hit. The information here is consistent with the study of a younger Roosevelt done by Dan Carlin in his Hardcore History series on World War I. It is conceivable that he may be willing to sacrifice life and assets to become involved in a greater war. Thank you. Well, thank you, LCSRN927. I, of course, agree with that. I think that uh, certainly Roosevelt was willing to do that, and in fact, he did, as the evidence suggests. And Fosca uh, also leaves a note on on this month's edition, uh, or last month's edition. Uh, He writes, Hi James, uh, Tora 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 isn't really a great piece of cinematography, but at least a good trigger to revisit the Pearl Harbor setup of events. Uh, One thing I must say I do not subscribe to is calling Pearl Harbor a false flag. I think it is doing the term and other events injustice when actions were taken under a real false flag, or at least trying to hint they were done under another flag. Consider there was a real interest by Japan to start uh, attacking Pearl Harbor as a part of an attack in the Pacific region, Thailand, Philippines, at the same time. Even if it was provoked by the U.S. government to a large extent, it was Japan's decision to give it a start. Possibly it is worth further historic investigation on why Japan was running into this trap. Also remembering a bit of the view shown in the previous FLNWO review, I sensed that there was quite some support on this war in Japan itself. Thus, I personally put Pearl Harbor more under the label LIHOP, let it happen on purpose, rather than MIHOP, make it happen on purpose. One may argue the result is just the same, but I am more after accuracy and not lumping together everything the U.S. government or inside forces had been doing. Anyway, thanks for an interesting episode with lots of references to follow up with. Thank you for that uh, note, Fosca, and I agree with you completely. I think that the term false flag is not really an accurate term for describing what happened at Pearl Harbor. Of course, false flag does come from a naval uh, context, so perhaps one could argue that that is applicable to Pearl Harbor. But of course, in that naval context where we derive the name false flag, it is literally a, uh, a f- uh, the wrong flag is run by the, the ships as they are attacking in order to try to convince the enemy it is someone that they are not. 
And of course, that is not the case with Pearl Harbor. It really was the Japanese that really did attack the Americans. And it's really just a question of the context of it where we find the deception. And so I think you're right. It isn't a false flag in that sense. And there should be a better name for what happened there. I don't know. Deception might just be the best one generally speaking. So if I myself used that term in that episode, I apologize. I'm not sure I did. Um, But at any rate, I do agree that that should not be the term that we use. But on that note, talking about why Japan uh, fell into that trap, uh, this is a question that came up from an email that I received from uh, Domat, who writes, uh, I listened to your podcast, great research, great job. Your Tora Tora film podcast uh, was also very interesting, but I would urge you to please uh, touch on an important question. Why did the Japanese attack Pearl Harbor? They were already on the move in the Pacific, in Indonesia, China. They almost solved their oil problems. Attacking Pearl Harbor, other than waking the American war machine, was militarily insignificant. So it is really perplexing to me how they fell to this, dis- uh, dis- how they fell into this decision. As a hint, the Americans were involved in modernizing the Japanese military in the second half of the 19th century. Probably they left somebody in their uh, in Japan's command. All right. Uh, thank you for the question, Domat. And it is a detailed question. And as I hope the the film actually did convey, I think, somewhat accurately, there was some dissension uh, in the ranks, so to speak, on the Japanese side. It's not that this, this decision was uniformly made and everyone agreed with it. It was a quite a controversial decision in its own way uh, to attack the Americans. But I think broadly speaking, there was the sense among a lot of the, uh, uh, certainly at the very least, the the hotheads in the military structure of Japan at the time, uh, that there really was going to be a confrontation with America at some point, so might as well strike at near the beginning of this conflict while it's still possible to do so. And I think uh, Pearl Harbor was exactly the type of strike they were trying to do, and, and it went as successfully as it could have possibly went, except for the fact that, oh, the main targets of that attack were not there in Pearl Harbor at the time. I wonder why. So uh, so uh, it's a complicated decision that was made by by certain members of the, uh, the military command structure and dissented by others, as was, again, I think accurately portrayed in the movie, for a more thorough fleshing out, and I mean thorough fleshing out of the history of this and, and how this decision was reached. I would recommend a very, very interesting podcast series from an interesting podcast in general called the History of Japan podcast that I listen to. Uh, regularly, that did a seven-part series called An Unnatural Intimacy, talking about the Japanese-American relationship. And that podcast series talked uh, specifically also about the lead-up to World War II and and the, the various people in the command structure who were making those decisions and why they made the decisions they did. It's very much mainline history, but it is still, I think, interesting and informative, so I'll put the link in the show notes so you can go and check out that podcast and uh, that podcast series in particular, An Unnatural Intimacy. All right, again, that's going to do it for this month, so we're going to close up the mailbag. Of course, if you do have anything to say about this month's edition, talking about A Christmas Carol, please log in and leave your comment on the website or just send an email directly via the contact form and we'll talk about it next month. And this is the point where I will announce next month's uh, book. And, well, we have quite an interesting one uh, lined up for you this, uh, this coming month. We are going to be talking about Philip Drew, Administrator, Uh, This is an interesting little book. It's written by Edward Mandel House. And if that name does not ring a bell, well, 
it should, but I'll let you I'll let you use your start page uh, skills on that one and find out who Edward Mandel House was and what this book is about. A uh, very, very interesting little tome we're going to be talking about next month. So that will be the third Monday of January 2015. Can you imagine? We are almost in 2015. My, how time flies. And speaking of time flying, I think I'm going to fly out the door. Thank you again for uh, joining me for this edition of Film Literature in the New World Order. I'm James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. I look forward to talking to you again very soon.